Hey, welcome to Perspectives. Today is going to be a little different. Uh, often when we do Perspectives, we have several people talk together and share perspectives, try to learn from different nuances of different people's views. But today, I'm going to take some time just to talk about um, charismatic issues around the faith. And by charismatic, what I mean is what is often known as a charismatic church, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, and then specifically about tongues. And this is coming right now, and the reason I'm doing this is the number of questions and conversations I've had with people as we've been working our way on weekends uh, here at Orchard Hill through 1 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, that deals a lot with the issue of tongues and prophecy and what are often called the sign gifts. And the sign gifts phraseology comes from 1 Corinthians 14, where it says that tongues is given to you as a sign. And so I want to just take a moment and work through uh, several of these things. And this should stand alone. You don't have to have heard the weekend teaching to hopefully benefit from this. And here's what I'd like to do to start. I'd like to actually start with uh, kind of a pastoral word um, to those of you who who are part of Orchard Hill, maybe not part of Orchard Hill, but I want to just talk for a few moments about why I would not be part of a charismatic church. And that may sound harsh as a way to set that up, uh, because some of you are probably saying, well, come on, if people worship Jesus, what's the problem? But I have seen people um, kind of get drawn into this, especially their kids into a youth program, and then it kind of puts the family in turmoil because they say, well, I didn't think there was any big deal having my kid go there. I mean, it's Jesus. What's the problem? And then they realize that there's some real differences of understanding and theology. And, and so this is hopefully just a way to help you think about this and consider whether or not you want to encourage this. Now, obviously, if your child is you know, this is their lifeline and it's this or they're partying on the weekend. Um, yeah, of course, going to a charismatic church is better than that. Um, but if you're saying all churches are just kind of the same, they all point to Jesus, this is really where I want to speak to this. And by the way, if a charismatic pastor were listening to this or advising on this, they would tell you not to generally attend a church like Orchard Hill for much the same reason. They would say these are different views this is where the difference is. Um, and it's not that I'm telling you what to do as much as just trying to make you aware of what the core issues are. And then we'll drill down deeply into the issue of tongues specifically here in a few moments. But first, let me give you 10 kind of dangers of what I'm going to call charismatic theology. And, and I've actually toyed with the idea of writing something on this. Um, but right now, I just want to give you 10. Um, so here's the first one. And that is in the charismatic movement, charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, they generally teach the idea that you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, that your salvation and being baptized by the Holy Spirit are two different things. And again, these times these I'm not going to go into a lot of scripture and defense. I'm just making you aware of the issue. But uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that we were all baptized with one baptism. And so my understanding, the understanding of a church like Orchard Hill, is that basically 
when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So there is not a second work. You don't need to be saying, have I got the Holy Spirit? You have all of the Holy Spirit available um, in your life once you come to faith in Jesus Christ. God has given you everything. First Peter 1 um, 3 says, um, or 2 Peter 1 3, excuse me, says you've been given everything you need um, in Christ Jesus to live a godly life. And so you do not have to seek a second work. Um, and again, often in charismatic churches, um, not always, sometimes there's some nuance, but often there's this implication that you need to have a second work, and the reason you're you're struggling, stuck in sin, have issues. Um, lack something is because you haven't had this experience. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, tongues is generally considered to be evidence of the Holy Spirit. And this means that uh, if you speak in some kind of an ecstatic utterance, a prayer language, that you now are showing evidence that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Uh, now, again, there's some nuance. Some would say that that's not that. And I'll talk more about tongues uh, here in just a few moments, but I want to give you these 10 first. I would argue that in the Bible, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And this is uh, significant in this way. A few years ago, there was a, a charismatic pastor named Ted Haggard who promoted many of the things that, that, that I'm talking about right here. And he was found to be seeking a prostitute, not living in accordance with his, his life, and yet speaking in tongues, advocating some of this theology. Now, this is not saying that everyone who advocates this is Ted Haggard. That would be an unfair characterization. That's not my point. My point is this. If tongues is evidence of the Holy Spirit, then you wouldn't expect there to be such disobedience in another area if tongues was a, a sole indicator. And what I think is important is to say in the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit is character. It's life change. It's, it's living something. It's not just an experience. So that's the second thing. Third thing, tongues are for everyone. Uh, and I would simply say it's a gift for some. Again, I'll address this in just a few moments. So I'm not going to take time on that right now. Here's a fourth thing. Often in charismatic churches, people will say that healing is a gift that some people still possess. And this uh, has a much more theological kind of um, way of, of thinking about it than, than I'm going to get into in this exact moment. But I would say this, that is God heals um, today, but the gift certainly seems to have been accompanied to the apostles in the first century more than it appeal, appears to be something that is um, given to individuals today. And here's, here's why I say this. Even if you uh, look at well-known faith healers, people like Benny Hinn or people like that, uh, what they often will do is they'll have you come to their crusade and they'll say the reason they do this is because you need faith and you need the environment. But, but rarely do these people walk into hospitals walk down the floor and heal everybody on the floor and say, all glory to God, because I just cleared out a hospital wing. Uh, even uh, Bethel Church in California, a well-known charismatic church, um, this is almost comical, but uh, they shut down their school of gifts and healing um, during the pandemic. Just think about that for a moment. Um, if they really had the gift of healing, why would they have to shut down the school of healing during the pandemic? Um, and so I believe God still heals. I believe we should pray for healing. I think God does the miraculous. 
I just question when somebody says, I have the physical gift of healing. Uh, if you did listen to the weekend teaching over the last uh, several weeks, and again, I realize that you may be catching this and not even know when the last several weeks were. But, um, but one of the things I said is that healing you could also see as being the gift of medicine or the gift of psychological healing if you want to, to talk about that today. So, so that's a fourth thing. Here's a fifth thing. Prophecy is how God speaks today. And again, this is more charismatic teaching. So God gives people immediate impressions and they speak with the authority of God into a situation. And my take would be that God speaks through his word and that anything that we want to say is of God should be tied to the scripture, um, not to just an impression. Now, again, I don't mean to say that God doesn't lead through impressions. What I'm saying is we should not give to it the weight of, of God and most of the time, people in charismatic circles will say, yeah, 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 of course, it needs to be evaluated by the prophets. There's even a verse on that. But in reality, what they believe is that the kind of higher you climb in the church, the more definitive your word is. So if a pastor says, God told me, um, then it feels definitive um, in, a, in a context. And I just believe that you should always point to the word of God in that. And we did another podcast a while back on uh, prophecy, and it was actually centered around the 2020 election because there were uh, prophets coming out and saying Donald Trump will be restored to office. Um, and this is God's word to me. And so we did a podcast. And if you can get past the time date stamp of that, meaning that it was around that election, we actually talked at length about this issue. So if this is an issue that interests you, you can search this in our podcast search bar and you'll find um, uh, perspectives on the idea of prophecy. But, but again, this is, this is more significant than you might realize because once you give yourself to this idea that people can speak words that are authoritative in your life from God, um, you become open to so much nonsense from people um, and manipulation and control. And um, so, so for example, Let's just say that, um, you know, somebody's uh, a friend of somebody and that person starts dating and they say, well, God told me you shouldn't date this person. Well, if God gives authoritative words like that, now what do you do? You're either disobeying God or you're saying, well, I'm choosing not to believe the prophet is of God. I think it's a whole lot cleaner to say that person doesn't speak for God. If they don't have scripture that says this, and then the, the question is the application. And so my take would be to say, it would be better today to say that, that whatever the, 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 the working of prophecy is, is it somebody saying, this is what the scripture says, and this is how I apply it to a particular situation. And that's the part that's open to interpretation. But we can all hearken back and say, the scripture says. So for example, my, my, my example of somebody dating, if somebody says, well, the scripture says that you shouldn't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, and it seems like you're dating an unbeliever. Therefore, I believe that you dating this person probably is not um, God's will for you unless you can demonstrate that this person's a believer. Now you have something to point to and to interpret, not just an impression uh, that somebody has. And so that's why that's such an important thing. Here's a sixth reason that I would be um, concerned about the theology of uh, charismatic churches. And that is often faith is seen to activate God's work. And what this means is that if you believe enough, then God will act. And if you've been around Orchard Hill, you've heard me talk about this several times because 
I see the damage of this pastorally so often. And what I mean is I've met with dozens of people, if not hundreds, over my years of being a pastor who have believed that if they just had enough faith, then God would heal a loved one. God would, would give them you know, a restored marriage or something like this. And then what happens is that person doesn't get better. That relationship doesn't heal. And now there's double the pain because now it's, well, okay, I have the pain of the loss, but I also have the pain of the fact that the reason I didn't get healing is because I didn't believe enough. I still remember when I was a pastor in Michigan meeting a guy whose wife had just died and he was part of a church like this. And he came to the church I was pastoring and he said, I can't go back to my church because we were all believing for my wife's healing. And the narrative in the church is that the reason she wasn't healed is that I, as her husband, didn't believe enough. Can you imagine anything crueler to say to somebody who's just lost a spouse? And, and it's, a, it's a nice trick from a, from a leadership standpoint, because you can say, just believe God's going to do it. And of course that draws you. If you're in the middle of a crisis, you want to believe that you have control and that you can, by faith, exercise something that's going to change the trajectory of what's ahead. And the reality of that is that you can't change it. God's going to do what God's going to do. But the reason I say it's a good leadership trick is then you can say, well, if it doesn't happen, it's your fault. You didn't believe enough. And that is, again, just, just cruel in so many ways. Now, again, don't get me wrong. You read scripture. There are times that faith appears to activate God's work. So I actually understand why this one is more taught uh, than some of the other ones. Uh, you can read through the Gospels and you see, well, your faith has made you well or believe and God will. And so there, there's, a, there's another error here, and that is getting to a point where you say, God's sovereign and we don't believe God for anything. I think you should, and I do pray to say, God, would you do this? God, I'm going to believe that you can do this. But here's the key. I'm going to say, but God, I believe that you know best. And so I'm not going to demand that you work in the way that I think is best. And when it comes to healing, one of the things we just need to remember is that healing is ultimate and that even when we pray for healing, God has already healed those who are his children spiritually, physically, and in every way in eternity. It's just a timing problem. So that's the sixth thing. Here's the seventh thing. Uh, apostles exist today. And this is, again, often taught in charismatic churches. Um, and I would say apostleship is a past office. And um, I can go into this if you have a question on it for a future podcast, we can go into this. But here's again why this is important. To claim apostolic leadership is to say, I'm up here, I have a direct line from God, and I can tell everybody what God wants. And again, there was an office of apostle, those who had seen Jesus personally, that, that were part of the original group. But it appears that, that the gift of apostleship, being able to be an emissary to unreached communities, existed in the New Testament, but the office of apostle seemed to stop. And so when people claim that today, what they're doing is they're saying, I have bigger authority than an elder board, than uh, a congregation, than an average person who knows how to interpret the scripture. And again, my plea would just be to say, don't give somebody that kind of authority because the Bible doesn't. In the Reformation, one of the things that the Reformation was, was, was about was this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that every Christian has the same capacity to interpret and understand scripture as anybody else in the same access to God. 
And why that's so important is it means there's no apostolic succession or authority. There's nobody who can say, just because of my office, I can speak definitively for God. You still have to argue from the scripture, show your point, and convince, uh, in my estimation, a plurality of leaders in the local church of the direction of the church. Um, at Orchard Hill, we have a board that has authority over the church. Um, when there's apostolic leadership, what they do is they generally say, I don't have a board because I'm closer to God. And some people won't even use this kind of language. They'll just simply say, this is, this is um, uh, me and I'm in charge. Uh, I think uh, one of the people that has been critiqued for this is Mark Driscoll. And he certainly plays with some of the charismatic teaching, but he has refused to have a board at his new church because he says the last board was out to get him at his last church. And so it's Mark Driscoll and everybody else. Well, that's just dangerous in any context to say, I don't have a plurality of leaders. Now he may, if he were sitting here say, I do have a plurality of leaders. I have two people on the staff that I pay. But if you're paying somebody, um, ah, there's a conflict of interest there. So that doesn't seem to work in, in my estimation. Um, here's an uh, eighth thing, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this in just a moment when we talk about our um, tongues. And that is, in many charismatic churches, what's taught is that acts is normative. Um, and what they mean is if God did it then, he can do it now. Since God acted one way in history, he's working that way now. And what I would, would say is that Acts is historical. Now, that doesn't mean you don't gain patterns and learn from that. But if you don't grant this, then, then you really are at least picking and choosing what parts of Acts you're making as normative. Um, because in Acts 2, we're told that all the believers had everything in common. So if Acts is normative, meaning what happened then should happen now, then you should live in a commune is what that means. And again, few charismatic churches would actually believe that. But what they'll do is they'll say, but, but the tongues experiences and the second baptism, that's all part of the, the working of the Holy Spirit. And again, all I want to do is just say that's inconsistent. And so we want to interpret scripture consistently. Here's a ninth thing. And, and that is in many charismatic churches, demon possession and spiritual warfare. So, so overcoming demon possession and spiritual warfare as seen, it is seen as one of the main keys to victory. So, for example, if you're struggling with a sin, the issue is you're in a spiritual battle and you just need to get the deliverance that God wants to give you, and it's a, a demon that's causing you to sin. Now, demon oppression is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Those things do exist. But here's why I, I, I struggle with this a little bit. It's a little bit like the old Saturday Night Live skit of uh, who do you think made you do it? Well, Satan made me do it. When you start to say that the key to victory is that God has to deliver me from demon oppression or possession or spiritual warfare, what you're doing is you're seeding all the ground of obedience. And throughout the passages of scripture, what what leads us toward Christ is obedience. So when I start to say, well, you have to get delivered. And so this is often in deliverance, breakthrough language. You're, you're looking for a breakthrough. God's going to deliver you. Um, it's couched in different ways. W what often happens is people will, will say, well, the reason I don't have deliverance from my affair or from lust or pornography or spending too much, using my credit cards too much, drinking too much, is because I haven't been delivered. So it's kind of God's fault. 
<laughs> because God hasn't delivered me. So until God delivers me, I guess I'm just, I'm just stuck being an angry person. I, you know, I have a temper. I'm a rageaholic and God has to deliver me. God can deliver you, but usually the way God works in the Bible is he bids us to come and follow him and to lay down our lives and take up our cross and follow him, meaning that the way that we grow in sanctification and in the work of God is to obey God. And usually that involves a struggle of day-to-day existence. And spiritual warfare is real, but it's real in those little choices every day, not in sitting back and saying, one day I'll get a breakthrough. Now, now again, I'm not saying that there can't be a moment where you say, well, I, I surrendered that and I left it there and I'm done. Oh, that's a beautiful thing when it happens. But all I'm saying is theologically to put all of the weight into that is misguided. And then here's a, a 10th thing. And um, that is often in charismatic churches, uh, there's a belief that says you can speak things into existence. This is sometimes called the word faith movement. Um, sometimes churches are proud of this. Sometimes they, they bury it somewhere else. And here's how, how you see this uh, come out. And that is when people will say things like, don't say that word because you're going to manifest it. Um, and I laugh about this because in the season I'm recording this, um, a well-known football player uh, had come out and said to his team, don't speak about the possibility of losing because you're going to manifest it. And, and, and it's, it's almost funny when you hear it that way. Like, really, I'm going to manifest losing by saying we could lose? Um, and, and the reason I say this is, is the roots of this is not really biblical as much as it is in paganism to say you can by your words bring something into being. I had a, a scare um, a, a while back about my own health and I had somebody say to me, don't even say the word cancer because by saying it, you are speaking it into existence. No, that's not the way it works. That's not the way God works, is that you can speak health into existence or you can cannot. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea of the, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, faith movement, where if you have enough faith, you can speak it into existence. I probably should have had those two next to each other. Um, but uh, when I was talking about this, because they, they go hand in hand, but, but the idea of saying you can speak something and it will happen then that is, is really using God as a genie rather than God as God. And so, um, again, I just, I see these as problems. Again, to be fair, if a charismatic pastor were sitting here, a Pentecostal pastor, they would say, basically, yeah, I think there is a second work of the Spirit, and you're missing out, Kurt, because obviously you don't have the Holy Spirit, and tongues should be part of your life, because why wouldn't you want that? to be. And of course, God heals and does the miraculous and, and, and prophecy. I have a word for you right now. You're, you're in the wrong on this. And, and, and they would go down this whole track and rightly would say to somebody, you, if you believe what I believe, shouldn't go to a church like Orchard Hill. If you've been around, maybe you've heard me say this. At some point, if you like what Orchard Hill stands for, you should not want to be part of a charismatic church. And if you're part of a charismatic church, you probably don't want to come to Orchard Hill. Um, and, and I don't say that as a harsh statement. I say that as a, there are some real theological differences that matter. And they're not just superfluous. We all are on the same team. We are on the same team. Jesus is the same. Uh, I can link arms and love people who have have this, but this is part of why I think there are different churches. 
because these are fundamental, important beliefs that make a difference in how people live. So I just wanted to, to hit that to start. Now I want to move into, into tongues for a moment. And there will be a link to a handout that will have a lot of this material uh, that'll appear in the show notes for this. And that way you can look at this because it'll be a lot easier to follow this if you're looking at this rather than simply listening to me talk. But here's what, what I want to do. And, and um, I'm going to draw and hold up a yellow pad for you because um, I think sometimes it's easier to, to see this way. And so this is, um, th this is what I'm calling the three views of tongues. And again, I did this on a weekend a while back, but I did a shorter version of this. I'm going to do a little bigger version of this here today. And the three views are basically this, and that is everyone should, I, I don't know if you can totally see that, but everyone should, some may, and it's done. And, and the reason that, that I, I break it down like this, like some people have called the everyone should a propagating view, this the permissive view, it's done the prohibitive view if you want alliteration. Some people have said this is a continuationist, this is a cessationist, um, you know, and this is, I don't know what they call, call this one here. But here, here's the basic idea, and that is when you're in the everyone should camp, you basically are saying that tongues is evidence of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, everyone should want to experience this gift that God has. If you're here, you're kind of saying tongues is seen as a gift that's given to some, but it's not necessarily available to all. Again, there's a handout that, that states this, and you can see kind of what I'm doing. And then here, you're basically saying in the prohibitive or it's done view, tongues is seen as having ceased. Therefore, it's not to be practiced at all today, that, that it shouldn't be happening anywhere. Okay, these are basically, you can see all the ways that people talk about tongues in these three views. And there are some distinctions in this, I, I, I would say. And, you know, you have people who are kind of over on this side, people here, and I'll put this back up here in just a moment. But um, give these people arms, you know how much I like stick figures. Um, but if you were just to think about it, way over here, this person would say, if you don't speak in tongues, it means that you don't have any um, salvation. Because if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Here, you'll have people who say, well, obviously, if, if the Holy Spirit's available to all, why wouldn't you want that? Because you're missing something. But they wouldn't necessarily say you aren't a person of faith. Here, you have some people who would say, well, if everyone can, why wouldn't I want that? All the way over to here to some who would say, wow, um, it seems really close to this idea of missing um, or being prohibitive. And then here, you have some people who would say, okay, it's done because it's only a known language. I'll talk about this in just a moment. Or people would come all the way over here and say, well, this is all of Satan. This is demonic. This is just wrong. And so even in these views, there's some differences, but I, I did want you to see that. So here's the nature of this. In the everyone should camp, tongues is mainly seen as an ecstatic utterance. What that means is there's a possibility that it's a known language, but it seems to people in this camp that tongues has basically moved on. Now, they, they will say that tongues is a known language, and they'll cite examples from the mission field where this has happened, usually hard to verify, but they'll say, the, the real issue here is it's your own prayer language. In the some may view, tongues is a known language and an ecstatic utterance, and so it should have kind of a, 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 a sense of being both. In the, pro, in the prohibitive view or the it's done position, tongues is a known language, 
And if there's any evidence of a prayer language, it too has ceased, is typically how people look at this. Now, here's the interpretation question. And again, I talked about this a few moments ago. In the interpretation, acts is normative for somebody in the everyone should view. Meaning that, um, that acts gives us the pattern. Whatever is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that's eh, probably something we don't need to pay much attention to. So when, example, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says when there's tongues being spoken in a church service, it should be two or three, there should always be an interpreter, and that's it. So that the outsiders who come in, that's the word it uses, outsiders, the inquirers, won't think you're mad, basically. Um, well, in the, the, the view of most charismatic churches, it's like, well, it, Paul wrote that, he didn't really mean it. Um, is kind of what, what they would do with that. Uh, in the permissive view or the some may view, Acts is seen as historical in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as the controlling principles. So Acts is, is historical. It's not necessarily teaching how everything was. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is because it's prescriptive in terms of its, uh, its type of literature. In the prohibitive view or the it's done view, people would say Acts is historical in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is seen through chapter 13, verse 8. And I do want to take a moment just for people to understand why this is important. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, where there is knowledge, it will be done away. Where there is prophecy, it will be done away. And then in the next verse, it says, when the perfect comes, knowledge and prophecy will cease. In verse 8, it says, tongues as well will cease. And in the original language, that's a different verb form. So prophecy and knowledge are passive, meaning it will be cease when something outside of it acts on it. And then it tells us in the next verse that the perfect will act on it, whichever, whatever the perfect is. Most people think that's when Jesus returns and we have it in the kingdom. But tongues is outside the loop because one, it's a middle verb, meaning it will cease in and of itself. And you can certainly argue is middle here deponent, meaning it doesn't matter if it's middle or passive. Uh, there's a lot you can say, but because in verse nine, it's not mentioned again, when the other two are mentioned, it appears outside of the loop, the, the different verb form in this. And so somebody who makes the argument that tongues has ceased would point to this verse and say, tongues was going to cease. It had not ceased during 1 Corinthians. Therefore, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 14, he was writing to a real situation, but tongues has ceased since then, and we are living in the era in which it ceased. Okay, that's how somebody gets to that point. Baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, in the everyone should view is seen as being distinct from conversion in the some may, it's seen as being simultaneous in the, in the it's done, it's seen as being simultaneous. The purpose of tongues then in the everyone should view is basically to say um, that this is to validate the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So the reason that you have tongues is it validates and shows that you really have the Holy Spirit. In the some may view, it's a gift given to some to demonstrate the diversity in the body of Christ. So, so people who hold the some may say, all the gifts are still operative, God's at work, and some people have the gift of tongues, maybe prayer language, maybe a known language to, to speak to people, but it's given to some. And then uh, in the prohibitive view, it was a sign in biblical times to authenticate the messenger of God, and it was specifically assigned to unbelieving Jews. 1 Corinthians 14 says that specifically, and so that's where they would, would hold on to. Historically, uh, in this, and again, not to go here, and I'm just going to point, I'm not going to write, but um, the denominations, typically everyone should as Assembly of God, full gospel church, is some vineyard. 
uh, are here. In terms of some may, this tends to be Christian Missionary Alliance, some Baptist churches, and many vineyard churches. And then over here in the It's Done, you tend to have uh, your uh, Presbyterians, your Episcopalians, and many Baptists as well. Prominent adherents here, you have Benny Hinn and Oral Jimmy Robert, or Oral Richard Roberts, Jimmy Swagger, Kenneth Hagen, um, Ted Haggard, people like that are, are in this. Here you tend to get John Stott, Tony Campolo, Billy Graham. Uh, I think this is where Matt Chandler has, has landed in recent days. And then over here you get John MacArthur, Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll are all in this category of saying it is done. Um, tongues is explained in the uh, everyone should view by saying it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they would sometimes grant that there could be other phenomenon. In the some may view, it says at times the Holy Spirit, at times it's psychological uh, factors, like you go to a place and everyone's uttering in a, in a kind of um, ecstatic utterance, and you're like, okay, I'm going to try it, and it happens. Uh, and then sometimes they would even say satanic, whereas in the it's done view, they would say it's either psychological or it is indeed demonic. Um, How is the experience entered into? In the, in the everyone should view, this is the by tearing, praying, laying on of hands. And I have some scriptures here in the handout. Uh, and the reason this is important is because this is where people would say, well, you just need to start. You need to prime the pump. I, I have told the story about having attended an Assembly of God church as a child in the Assembly of God grade school and being taught, basically, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian, so you should try to speak in tongues. And going forward and not being able to speak in tongues in the service and being taken to a back room where they would teach you how to speak in tongues. And they would say, well, just repeat after me. And they would say it was priming the pump to try to get you to be able to speak in tongues. Now, that isn't every Assembly of God church. That was, you know, experience a couple decades ago now for me. But it's not not happening in other places today. And the idea is the same, which is you need to tarry, you need to pray, you need to ask God to give it to you, and, and all of that. In the some may, it's spontaneous, directed by the Spirit. In the it's done, it's seen as just being a completely false um, view. And then the explanation of the historical gap. Now, the reason I say this is, is historically, from toward the end of the first century, until about 1900, 1906 with the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, there weren't a lot of tongues in church history. You can find some, you can find especially some heretical groups that did it, but by and large, when you read church history, you don't see John Calvin writing about this and you don't see this in, in um, any of that time period. And so what somebody in the everyone should view would say is that there's no real gap um, or they would say that Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, that says, young men will dream dreams and have visions, and I'll pour out my spirit, um, and that this is when tongues came back. And so there was a gap, and this is the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28. Um, here, uh, people who say some may, they would just say, this isn't really determinative. And then they, in the um, prohibitive it's done view, would say the reason that this is important uh, is because it proves that it's done and everything that's happening now is false. Okay, so that just gives you a lay of the land. Uh, if you're still watching, <laughs> uh, let me work through with you some key questions. And again, this is on your handout, uh, so you can print this and, and, and follow with this. Here's the first one. Was tongues a known language or an ecstatic utterance or both? 
that is a, an important question uh, when you come to this. And what does it mean for today? So in the original language, tongues is the Greek word glossa, and it means basically a language. And there's 50 occurrences of it in the New Testament. And I gave you all of the different ways it's used, so I'm not going to walk through that. You can look all of them up. But here's, here's what's important in this, in my estimation. In Acts chapter 2, where the people came and they spoke in a tongue or in a language, a glossa, this is the word again that's used here, what you see is that the people understood this, and even if you go to the, go to the bottom of your, your page where there's a footnote, it will say, or languages, and then through verse 11. So for example, verse 4 of Acts chapter 2, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Okay, so other languages, footnote says that, glosses meaning uh, means that. And then if you just, just read down through the chapter, what you see is that people actually heard the, heard the language from people who didn't know it in their language. So this would be like, like going to the Olympics, okay? And you're there with people who speak all kinds of languages you don't know. And all of a sudden, somebody who clearly is not an English speaker starts speaking in English. And you say, oh my goodness, they're speaking to me and they're speaking the word of God. That would be an unmistakable work of God. You wouldn't have any question. You'd go, that is clearly God at work. That is what happened in Acts 2. Now, again, I'm arguing that this is historical, not normative. So I'm not saying that that means every instance in Scripture has to be that. But what I'm saying is when you go back to where tongues started, that is how it started. So to say today that almost nothing that happens in the arena of tongues is like that is problematic for me. What I would expect if, if tongues was normative today in the way that... that charismatic churches practice it, that what you would see is you would see that when a youth group who is full of tongue speakers goes on a mission trip and they're all in a place where they don't speak the language, that at least a few of them would speak the language in a way that it was known and they would all say, the Holy Spirit is here, here's the gift of tongues. That would be clear to me. And it would be clear in our churches, even if you said 1 Corinthians 14 is practice. And if you say it's a known language, then that answers every question because if somebody walked into Orchard Hill on a weekend who did not speak Italian and they stood up and said, I believe God has, has a word for me and they started speaking Italian and there was somebody in the congregation who spoke Italian who had the gift of interpretation of that and I realize some people would say that's not supernatural, all of that. And they then said, well, this is what they just said in Italian. Here's what we would all do. We'd all say, wow, God just had a word for us today in this. But again, what happens in tongues speaking is often people will speak it, there's no interpretation, or they'll speak it and then somebody else will stand up and interpret it. And who knows anything, like there's no verification of anything. So, so, you know, somebody stands up and they speak in an ecstatic utterance and the next person says, I think God just said that everyone should go home and eat hot dogs. Now, that's not what they say. They'll say, God said that we should all pay more attention to the political race that's going on right now, that there's, there's evil afoot or something like that. Um, and so you end up with, with, this, with this subjective mishmash that you have no idea is, is of God when, again, if you go back to the known language argument, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Now, again, there are some places, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, 
where you can see that there could be room for a prayer language. So I'm not saying that's, that that is definitively not, but what I'm saying is, is you have to account for tongues being a known language in the Bible. And, um, and often uh, the principle of interpretation is how something is first used is how it should be controlled. Um, and I think it's important here to say that ecstatic utterance is not unique to Christianity, that other religions, other places have practiced it. Um, so just simply saying, well, it happened, therefore it's real, is not necessarily a good argument. Um, and, uh, and as I wrote here, what would be more clearly miraculous? Somebody speaking in a known language, having it interpreted, or somebody saying, hey, I just had this ecstatic utterance and now I interpret it. Here, here's the other thing that's, that's interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this on TV, a TV preacher. I don't know if you ever stop at these when you're flipping through channels. We don't really flip through channels anymore because now you dial up exactly what you want. So it's been probably a decade since I've seen a TV preacher, but I assume these things still happen. And that is, have you ever seen somebody speak in a tongue and then give their own interpretation and say, well, I have the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation? Uh, and so somebody will be like, shaka, laka, you know, and whatever their tongue is. And then they'll, and then they'll say, well, God just said this. And, and he said that there's somebody out there right now who needs healing. But the reason you're not getting healing today is because you haven't sown the seed financially. And so God is saying to you to sow the seed financially today to our ministry. And God will give you back a hundredfold and give you healing. Again, how, how desperate is that? Because you're preying on somebody's fear and saying, God has given me a word, therefore give us money and then God will heal you and you're not getting healed because you haven't. You can't verify it on any, on any level. And so I'm just, again, saying if it's a known language, then they have somebody else say, hey, here's what you said in a language you don't even know. Now I'm going to say, okay, maybe God's at work here. Maybe God's doing something here. But when it's that and your end is often give me more money, I'm a little suspicious, okay? That's where I am on that issue. Second question, uh, does Acts teach a pattern of how the Holy Spirit works in a believer's life that is normative for all time? And again, this is a key question because if Acts is normative, then you say, well, it appears that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, was a second work and that tongues accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts... There are five times that tongues is mentioned. It's in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. Uh, I have the passages listed here. And then what I did is I listed the things that accompanied tongues. And I just said, did this happen in this passage, yes or no? Uh, again, this is on your chart. So, for example, in Acts 2, there was the sound of wind, tongues of fire. The place was, was not shaken. Tongues was spoken. There was no laying on of hands, no prayer. Tongues was after salvation. Tongues was not at salvation. And it was a known language. And if you work over to Acts 4, you can see the distinction, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. And the point of giving you this chart is just to say there is no pattern. There is nothing that you can say, well, this is how it worked every time. So when somebody goes to Acts and they say, well, this is the pattern of how God works, then you would expect that there would be some constancy here. And here's the other question, and, and I listed these as well. If you believe that Acts is establishing a pattern for all time, then what about these patterns? Acts 126, casting lots and big decisions. Um, is that God's pattern for how you should make a decision, or is it 
um, instead is supposed to be something that you pray about and discern. Um, have you thought about just, you know, walking in if you're single to a singles group at church and saying, I'm going to cast lots and whoever God points to, that's going to be my spouse? Um, I, I mean, okay, but why not if that's how they chose the next apostle? Uh, Acts 2, 44 through 45, selling possessions and having everything in common. Again, if you're going to argue that Acts is normative, you probably should live in a commune, okay? Um, Acts 2, 46, daily religious meetings. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, people got together and heard the apostles teaching every day. Uh, you want to come to church every day? Um, I wouldn't mind it. I'd be happy to teach every day if you'd show up. Um, but again, to say that Acts is normative for tongues and not this, a little off. Uh, Acts 4.32, again, sharing all possessions. Acts 5, sudden death when you worship falsely. This is Ananias and Sapphira who came in wanting to act like they had given more than they gave and they were struck dead and it struck fear into the hearts of people. Now, obviously that doesn't happen today, but why not if it's a pattern? Uh, why aren't there people dropping dead in our churches? Um, because Acts isn't normative, it's historical. Acts 6, seven men should be appointed to care for the widows. Um, so every church should have seven men appointed uh, to care for widows, according to that. Acts 9, 3, conversion should be accompanied by a bright light. If, again, Acts is normative, did you have a bright light at your salvation moment? Acts 9, 36 through 43, ability to raise the dead. Um, if somebody goes all the way with their idea of, of uh, apostolic, charismatic teaching, then it would follow that the people who have that gift would still have the capacity to raise the dead. Now, there are some who claim that. Uh, hard to verify. Um, sometimes they'll say, ah, oh, we did see somebody come back to life. But, but again, uh, if you really have that gift, walk into a graveyard and bring somebody back who's been buried for three months. We'd all say, ah, that looks like a God thing. Um, rather than the, the person, you know, had 20 minutes in heaven, and now they're writing books that tell us how it all goes down. Um, Acts 16.25, if you're ever in prison for your faith, if you sing and pray, you'll be released. Uh, and again, Acts 20, the ability to raise the dead. Now, again, my point here isn't to say Acts isn't relevant, but it's to say that, that once you say this is normative, and I'm going to say this is how it works, you're being inconsistent. And so you want to go to prescriptive scripture. So in the New Testament, Jesus obviously was prescriptive at times, and there's some historical there. And then the chapters that follow in Romans and, and in the letters, we get prescriptive teaching. Acts is more historical. Uh, obviously, we can learn, we can glean, we can say, here's, here's how God worked, and, and there are patterns here. Um, um, but to say that, and, and here's another passage, Mark 16 uh, that talks about tongues. Let me just, just show this to you. And this comes at the end of a gospel uh, that is sometimes has a disputed ending. Some people would say this is, doesn't belong in the, in the New Testament uh, because there's a longer and a shorter ending. But here's, here's what we read. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary. This is verse 9. She went on and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that he, she, was, she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven. It goes on. 
Verse 15, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So here's the great commission, again, just like at the end of Matthew's gospel. Then it says this, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then it says this, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will have a place in their hands on this and they will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, uh, you say, okay, that's got some weird factor to it. So drive out demons, okay, charismatic church, let's drive out demons. Um, Non-charismatic church, we should pray uh, again around this, and at times that is a very real thing. Speak in new tongues, okay? Um, and so here, um, this is, is again, uh, okay, you're speaking. By the way, new here is the Greek word kainos, not neos. New in quality, not new in time. Um, pick up snakes, drink deadly poison, and heal sick people. Now, here's how most charismatic churches handle this. They'll say, we drive out demons. We speak in new tongues. We pray and heal the sick. Deadly poison? Eh, not so much. Uh, handle snakes? Eh, let's skip that one. With good reason. Because I don't think this was Jesus saying this is what the church should do for all time. He was saying this will accompany the apostles. Now, there are some snake handling churches. Uh, sometimes in some you know, more rural areas, you'll find churches where people drink deadly poison and say, look, this is proof of God's work. They're at least being consistent when they, when they interpret it this way. Um, I would read this and say this was Jesus saying this is going to accompany my original apostles, again, the original apostles was an office that did not continue. So when they um, ceased to need the validation, these signs ceased to exist in the same way. All right. Is baptism of the spirit um, a distinct experience from conversion? Um, I have several verses listed here that are, that are important. Uh, the key verse is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Um, and again, I have a little chart here. Baptism of the Holy Spirit happens once. It was predicted in the Gospels and in Acts 1. It happened in Acts 2, and it's now a universal event for believers. It's never commanded. It's a positional truth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is in the aorist, meaning it has happened with continuing results or, or with an abiding results, and it results in the presence of the Spirit's life. The filling of the Spirit, in my understanding, happens many times. It happens in response to yielding to the Holy Spirit that empowers us for service in life. It is commanded, Ephesians 5.18. It's experiential and practical. It's in the present tense in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. And it results in God's working in our lives and singing and in power. Is speaking in tongues the evidence of the Holy Spirit's power in a person's life? I think I've already answered this. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 through 21 says be filled with the Spirit. And then uh, in participles, it tells us what that looks like that we'll speak to one another, we'll sing and make music, we'll give thanks, we'll submit. Um, and so this is that God is working uh, in and through um, His Spirit coming into people, and it doesn't mention the miraculous gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.30, Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Uh, that could be 
um, but you do eagerly desire the greater gifts. But either way, the point of that is saying not everyone has all these things. At best, at most, they're a gift that some should have. It's not for everyone. Um, and so it's often implied by those who advocate the everyone should position that those who do not speak in tongues are missing out on the potential of the Spirit's power in their lives. And again, 2 Peter uh, 1, 3, and 4, you have everything you need. So conclusion, and this is down here at the end of this handout. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a controlling passage, and any manifestations of tongues should reflect this. And here's four things 1 Corinthians 14 teaches. It teaches specifically that the gifts are for edification for the whole body. The word edification shows up several times in 1 Corinthians 14 to build up. Sometimes it's translated. The reason tongues is given is so that it builds people up. 1 Corinthians 14 teaches specifically that understanding is to be valued. 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 20. That's why interpretation is important. 1 Corinthians 14 teaches that unbelievers' perceptions matter. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 25 says, will not then an unbeliever or an inquirer come in and think you're, you're, you're kind of crazy? Um, therefore, try to do things that, that, that are sensitive to those who, who don't necessarily believe. Again, if you have language as your rubric, this all makes sense. And then 1 Corinthians 14 teaches specifically that any practice of tongues should be directed by order, verses 26 through 40, and it gives us that whole perception. So back to the chart here for a moment. So you may say, okay, so you gave me this chart. Where are we in this? So here's where I am, okay? I'm going to put myself right here, <laughs> meaning I put myself very close to the it's done line, but in the some may line. And here's how, how I've landed here and why I've landed here. 1 Corinthians 14 says at the end of the chapter, do not um, forbid to speak in tongues. I think it was A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, who said, seek not, forbid not. If God wants to give somebody the gift of tongues to speak in a language, I'm certainly not going to try to say that isn't of God, which is over here, although I understand a lot of this. But I'm very sympathetic to the, it generally was a known language in the Bible. I think there is some room for saying I have experienced this and I see in 1 Corinthians 14 a little bit of openness to, to it being a prayer language. So I say, okay, great. It's some may. Um, but uh, again, I would want any use of it to be governed by 1 Corinthians 14 in the church um, and kind of landing closer to known language. The reason we don't have it in our services is because um, it isn't known with an interpreter, and it isn't that way uh, that it's been verified. And so that's how, how I've come to understand and experience tongues and how I want um, you to understand that. I hope this is helpful uh, in terms of just giving you some perspective on this issue. Obviously, there are books that are written on this. There are a lot of things you can read uh, and this is really just a, a fire hose of information today, and I, I recognize that. And, and so let me just, just end with this simple statement. What is it that you think you need that you don't already have that, that tongues gives you? Now, I know what somebody who speaks in an ecstatic utterance as a prayer language would say, I feel closer to God. The spirit intercedes with, with words, with, with um, things that are too deep for words. And if that's, that's where you're at and you're practicing that, I'd say, okay. Um, but if you're somebody who doesn't have that and you have people who come along and say you should, or it would be better if you did, 
Um, I just want to point back to kind of the 10 dangers of the charismatic movement or church and say, what are you really looking for? And often what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, I want to shortcut kind of the, the, the blocking and tackling or the planting and plowing of studying the Bible, obeying, and, and encountering God day by day. Here's what I know from years of being a pastor, and that is whether somebody speaks in tongues or not, whether somebody has this experience or not, the people who exhibit godly character over time study the Word, worship regularly, pray regularly, take the Word seriously, and obey what they see in the Word. I've seen great people of charismatic faith do that and live godly lives. I've seen people who have never prayed in a tongue do that. I've also seen people pray in tongues and abandon obedience, stop studying the Word, and make a train wreck of their lives. And I've seen people who don't speak in tongues who've done that. My point is that the way that you connect deeply to God ultimately is not about whether or not you speak in a tongue. It's about whether or not you are constantly bending your knee to the Word of God and taking that Word into your life and letting it shape you and mold you and direct you. And so that's where I want to leave this today, just the hope that that's what, what all of us would choose to do in our pursuit of, of understanding and knowing who God is. Thanks for uh, taking the time to watch. If you made it to the end, you get a gold star today uh, for effort in this. And obviously, there's always more content at orchardhillchurch.com around the Perspectives podcast, the weekend messages, and other opportunities to keep learning online as well as in person.